0: Good morning, Midland Reformed Church. (laughs) At a distance you are. I know you don't like the front row, but come on, this is. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it to uh, Matthew chapter 10 And beginning at verse 12. Now, let's go to verse 40. I'll shorten it up just to the last three verses that I want to actually get to today. Verse 40 of uh, Matthew chapter 10. And uh, we're just continuing our series through the uh, lectionary readings. And uh, the uh, lectionary has us parked here in Matthew 10 for a number of weeks. And so uh, this is the uh, conclusion to that uh, text today. Uh, As you arrive in that um, location, uh, let me invite you to bow your heads with me and uh, we'll ask for God's blessing and our time together in his word. So Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you for uh, this uh, magnificent canopy of creation under which we can worship you, uh, mindful that you are the creator of all that we see. Thank you for uh, your providence. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your blessing. And today, Lord, we ask also that you would uh, add your uh, challenge to us, that you would um, find us, be present to us, be known to us uh, as we are, but don't leave us just as we are. We invite you to be at work in us, doing the same creative work that we witness around us, birthing new life, new opportunities, and new growth. So Lord, do that work through the same power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you is welcoming me, And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. If you welcome a prophet as one who speaks of God, you will receive the same reward that a prophet gets. And if you welcome a good and godly person because of their godliness, you will be given a reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers you will surely be rewarded. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. Karl Barth um, is a, a famous theologian. How many of you have ever heard of Karl Barth? Yeah, a few of you. So Karl Barth, um, maybe the most influential uh, Protestant uh, uh, Theologian of the 20th century, and he was known to have just a little bit of a sense of humor. And uh, one of the first uh, times that I knew that I really was going to like Karl Barth uh, was uh, just looking at the title of a book that he wrote, right? So uh, theologians get into these conversations and they don't just talk to each other, they write books to each other, right? That's how they do that. And so uh, a guy named Emil Bruner uh, wrote a book. And uh, Karl Barth didn't like it very much, and so he wrote another book back. And the name of his book was simply Nine. No. <laughs> right? The title of the whole book was No. And I, th- I thought, now, if, if you can write a book that's entitled No, uh, you're my kind of guy. That's great. And so, um, so this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with in this little story. So Karl Barth lives in, uh, uh, lived uh, his life in Basel, uh, Switzerland. And uh, he was going out and about his business one day in Basel. And uh, he got onto a streetcar. And a tourist visitor to the city got onto the streetcar next to him. And while they were driving along in the streetcar, Carl uh, Bart leans over to the, to, the, uh, to the visitor, and he said, so are you visiting Basel? Are you a, a tourist? And the man said, yes, I am. I'm very happy to be here. I'm looking forward to seeing the city. And Carl Bart said, well, is there anything particular that, that uh, you know, I live here. Uh, this is my home. Is there anything in particular that you would like to, to see while you're here? And, and the man scratched his head for a moment. He said, well, actually, there is. He said, I would love to meet The famous theologian from Basel, Switzerland, a man named Karl Barth. Have you ever heard of him? And Karl Barth uh, responded. He said, well, yes, actually, uh, I uh, cut his, uh, I give him a shave uh, every morning. And uh, the man uh, was delighted, and he got off the uh, streetcar, and he could be heard saying to people around him, guess what, guess what? I just met Karl Barth's barber. (laughs) All right, I thought that was great because I like Karl Barth, but anyway, uh, that, that's the, in our text today, Jesus is making this absolutely amazing claim. Jesus says, if somebody meets you, if somebody welcomes you, if somebody serves you, uh, they are meeting Jesus. It's not that they're meeting a representative of Jesus. It's not that they're meeting an ambassador of Jesus. Uh, It's not that they're meeting somebody close to Jesus, not even somebody close enough to Jesus to shave his whiskers. They're meeting Jesus himself. That's the claim that Jesus is making here. When somebody meets you, when somebody receives you, when somebody welcomes you, when somebody serves you, as you're being sent out, They're receiving Jesus. One commentator put it this way. There's a snug fit between the person who talks about Jesus and Jesus himself. He who receives you receives me, Jesus says. He doesn't say, if they believe the words that you speak, then my spirit will move in their hearts. He says instead that if people find cause to love you, If people find cause to welcome you, if people find cause to receive you and welcome you into their homes, then Jesus himself is welcomed into that home in all of his fullness. You are sent. This whole passage in Matthew 10 has been all about the church being sent out on mission, being sent out with words and deeds. And here, Jesus is, is sort of putting the, the capstone on that sending, and he's saying, you are not just a messenger. You are not just a teacher. You are not just a discipler. You're not just a small group leader. You're not just an evangelist, but you are the presence of Jesus in the world. And then the text seems to become a little bit repetitive, And it can be a little bit tricky to keep track of what's actually going on. Sometimes we can get lost in the weeds and miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus mentions a prophet. He mentions a righteous person. And he mentions little ones. And by the way, when Jesus is talking about little ones, he's not using the language there to talk about children. He's talking about people who are in a humble position in culture. So the righteous person, the prophet, the little ones, and we can dig into the weeds in this text and begin to wonder, what do these different groups represent? And who is Jesus thinking about? And, and which one do I belong in? And sometimes uh, uh, commentators will say things like, well, uh, the prophets will be identified with the apostles. And if you're a righteous person, you must be clergy. And if you're little ones, you're lay people. And they create this hierarchy in this, in this really detailed map. But all of that sort of speculation just collapses away when you realize what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying, it doesn't matter which one of those groups you're in. It doesn't matter if you're a prophet, a righteous person, or a little one. No matter who you are, no matter what stage you occupy in life, if somebody welcomes you, if somebody receives you, if somebody blesses you, they're receiving me. You are the presence of Jesus. No matter how important you are, no matter how humble you are, a follower of Jesus is the presence of Jesus. Jesus says about you what he says in another place about himself. Jesus talks about his relationship with his Father in heaven in very much the same terms. He alludes to it again here in this text. Jesus says about himself and his Father, he says, if you have seen me Then you have seen the Father. He says there's there's no sunlight between who I am and who the Father God is. There's no distinction between the, the two. Jesus says, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a Messiah. But I am the very presence of God himself. There's no difference between the message and the messenger. The reason that we are so closely related to Jesus, the reason that we are so wed to the identity of Jesus, is because Jesus has wed himself to you. Jesus has chosen to identify himself with you. Jesus, he says in this text, was sent. Jesus is using very sparse, very condensed language. He says, I was sent. And in those simple words, he's expressing the entirety of the gospel. Jesus was sent. He was sent into the world. He was sent by the Father into the world. Not so that you and I could work really, really hard and get ourselves to some level of performance and and maybe someday attain to being a little bit like Jesus. And, And maybe if we're really, really good and really, really diligent, that someday, maybe, maybe God would accept us the way that Jesus was accepted. Jesus says, I was sent, not so that you could work really hard to become like me, but so that I could become like you. When Jesus is talking about the gospel, he's always talking about the fact that Jesus came to identify with you. Jesus came to be like you, to take on your nature, to take on your humanity, to so closely identify himself with you that the death that he would ultimately die would stand for you. And so that the life that he lived would stand for you. And so that the resurrection that he experienced would become your resurrection as well. There's no other religion and no other philosophy in the world that expresses a God who does that. And what happens when Jesus was sent and Jesus presses into your life is that your life then becomes an expression of his life. There are other places in scripture where this close, intimate connection between your life and the life of Jesus is is described, and almost every time that description is set out, we see that it carries a tremendous responsibility. I thought long and hard about whether or not to preach a sermon like this today, because I'm about to lay some responsibility on you, church, and it's a weight in some ways, The responsibility uh, is seen in places like the startling uh, teaching from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says this in fairly stark language. He says, listen, if a man sleeps with a prostitute, that man is dragging Jesus into bed with the prostitute. If you sleep with a prostitute, Christ is forced to be with that prostitute. If people see you, what kind of Jesus are they seeing? When, Jesus, when people observe your life, what do they learn about the life, the nature, the character of Jesus? Christians who are offensive in a loud or mean or sort of in-your-face argumentative kind of a way, frankly haven't served the cause of Jesus very well. I mean, who wants to be associated with the content of the gospel if the one proclaiming that gospel uh, is the very person that most people in our world want to avoid? Matthew is saying something very, very different here than we usually think. He's not saying Jesus is your best argument, so bone up on your theology. He's not saying Jesus is your message that you carry to the world and trumpet around. Jesus isn't a debate point. Jesus isn't designed to make you better than everybody else or to make you look good. Jesus isn't even just an all too distant aspiration that you, that you see setting out there, but say, oh, that's Jesus and I'll never arrive there. He says, Jesus is your present. Jesus is your lived reality. And that can seem like a huge and intimidating responsibility. But Jesus is gracious in this text. Jesus is kind and gracious to us. And he says finally at the end, he says, listen, just offer a cup of water. Just a cup of water offered in my name. And when you offer that cup of water, that gift is reason for all of heaven to celebrate. A cup of water is the lowest of all gifts and the little one is the most humble of all stations. So the most humble, sort of most fringe, sort of most broken person who simply offers the simplest, smallest gift, causes all of heaven to come to their feet and take notice. A simple cup of water. My own shorthand description of the life that Jesus is inviting us to has become a description of discipleship that I use. Discipleship is simply this. It's to live the life that Jesus would live if Jesus was living my life. That's the responsibility of our identity in action. To live the life that Jesus would live If Jesus was living your life, if Jesus was living your life and Jesus had your neighbors and Jesus had your coworkers and Jesus had your extended family members, what would those individuals experience about the presence of Jesus by the way that you live your life? Strangers on social media, servers that you encounter in the restaurant, friends that you encounter in the park, Uh, Years ago, I was having coffee at a Burger King early one Sunday morning before I was to be a guest preacher at a church, and while I was standing at the counter waiting for my coffee to be served, a man dressed in a button-down shirt with a tie and dress pants on stomped up to the counter at Burger King, threw down a tray of food, the food went flying off the tray, over the counter, and onto the floor on the other side, and he yelled at the workers in Burger King and he said, listen, this food is cold and the order isn't right. And then he stood there and glared at all of the workers until they corrected his order and delivered a hot tray of food. Then the man picked up the tray of food, brought it back to the table where he was sitting with his family, all uh, equally uh, dressed up. They set the, the, the tray down, they joined hands, they bowed their heads, and they gave thanks to God for the meal that they were about to receive. What did that man teach the Burger King workers about the presence of Jesus? Not in the bowing of his head, but in his interaction at the counter. Knowing some of the stories about how my daughter was treated the summer that she scooped ice cream, My guess is that that is not an isolated event. What is the Jesus that I am representing? How do I talk to people? How do I look at people? How do I engage with people? Who do I invite over for dinner? Who do I include in my plans? Who am I building relationships with? Living the life that Jesus would live if Jesus was living my life. That's discipleship. Many of us think of discipleship in terms of some practices that we engage in. In the practices of discipleship that we engage in, things like memorizing scripture or having a morning quiet time, studying the word, going to worship, those are not discipleship. Those are all tools and events and experiences that we engage in that help us to live the life of a disciple. The difference is the difference between trimming the sails and sailing a boat. Trimming the sails on a sailboat is not the same thing as sailing a sailboat. You can trim the sails on a sailboat and still be perfectly well tied to the dock. Saints of God, untie yourself from the dock. The Spirit of God is blowing. The Spirit of God is moving. The Spirit of God is inviting you not to stay put, but to follow him out on mission, to be the presence of Jesus in the world. Untie and follow him. Jesus will be seen in your life in the small things not the grand gesture. Fred Craddock was an amazing homiletician, a great uh, teacher of preachers. And he writes these words. He says, to give my life for Christ appears to be glorious. Uh, To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. The grandiosity of discipleship. Uh, We think giving our all to the Lord is like going and taking a $1,000 bill and laying it down at the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. But he says this, the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and he asks us to cash in that $1,000 for a bunch of quarters. And we go through our life laying down 25 cents here, 25 cents there. 50 cents here, 25 cents there. Listening to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying, go and get lost. Going to the committee meeting, giving a cup of water to, a shaky, uh, to the hands of a shaky man in a nursing home. Usually, he says, giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all of those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little bit by little bit by little bit over the long haul. How do you spend your money? 25 cents. How have you kept your word? How have you kept your commitment? 25 cents. How have you given a real day's work for an honest day's wage? 25 cents. How do you talk about others when they're absent from you? How do you love and have compassion on those who are different from you? How do you express forgiveness to those who have wounded you? 25 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents. A cup of cold water, a cup of cold water, a cup of cold water. 25 cents here, 25 cents there. This moment. This week, this year, this decade, a lifetime spent in the presence and as the presence of Jesus. Saints, when you are welcomed, when somebody befriends you, they befriend Jesus. When somebody welcomes you, they welcome Jesus. When somebody serves you, They serve Jesus, whether you're great or small. All followers of Jesus are the presence of Jesus in this world. What Jesus are you living? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks for your presence with us. Thank you that you came into our world to wed yourself to us and to identify with us in all of our woundedness and all of our brokenness and all of our rebellion against you. Thank you for taking on uh, the weakness of humanity so that we could experience all of the power and all of the strength of divinity. Lord, I pray that you would um, allow us to be so content and so surrendered to your presence in our life. That when uh, we enter a home, when we enter a conversation, when we exchange uh, on uh, social media, that your presence is known. Lord, help us to find ways to offer the cup of cold water and to lay down 25 cents and to do that in a way that brings honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.